I was the China guy. I realized that there's a lot of people like me in China, but there weren't a lot of people like me in Australia. That、mm. my unique skill set was the ability to understand and synthesize some of what's going on in China and what was happening, and then being able to communicate that and present that back to Australian business people or Australian entities. I'm here today with Tom Parker, the Commercial Business Advisor at New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, and the Vice President of the Australia-China Business Council in Victoria. Tom's Asia journey was seeded in his mind when he saw his mum attend night school to study Chinese. Coupled with some rallying words from his uncle Sharky, gave Tom enough encouragement to pursue studying Chinese in high school, then later at uni. Tom's clout. Is the ability to bring his China know-how back to Australia to help Australian businesses, and later leveraging that same skill set to drive engagement with the Chinese Australian communities, both here in Australia and in China, through the one thing that unites Australians: sport. We talk about Tom's first memories of visiting China in the early 90s. How he got inspired by a professor wearing a tuxedo shirt, which led him to do his thesis on a Chinese pop singer, and later setting up his own business in the Australia-China space and leading the first AFL regular season match for premiership points in China. Welcome to Cloud Asia, where we ask Australians to take us on their journey to Asia capability by choosing a food, song, show, and person. That captures the essence of their experience to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Tom Parker. Good evening, Tom. Welcome to Clout Asia. It's great to、Hi、have、Lucy. you on the show. Thank you. We met, if I'm not mistaken, in Shanghai, albeit briefly. Whilst you were there as the head of AFL, and reconnected through the AFL again quite recently. That's right. Before we get into that part of your journey, I'd love to take it right back to the very start of how your China journey began. When did you get that interest and start learning Chinese? For me, it was a family connection. I am the youngest of seven kids, and right at the end too. So there's nine years between me and the next one. My eldest sister was 18 when I was born, and I grew up with my older sisters being like aunts, not necessarily in the same household. And one of my sisters, who was studying at ANU at the time, met a Bruneian Chinese guy and married him. And I guess through her and that marriage. We got introduced to the overseas Chinese community, Southeast Asian Chinese community in Melbourne in the late seventies, early eighties. Going to Baptist weddings in Doncaster and the Red Lantern in Chinatown. My mum was studying Mandarin at night school to speak to Tim's, my brother-in-law's grandmother, who didn't speak English. I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that taught Mandarin in the eighties. Is Pentley Essendon? No, it's Melbourne Grammar. Okay,、And、that's very progressive of them. Yeah, yeah, it was unusual. And in year six or seven, I can't remember. We did half a year of French and half a year of Chinese, and then you could choose what you wanted to study. And、hmm. 
For a lot of people, they were interested in Europe, but because I had that kind of connection, I'd been lucky enough to go to Singapore and even spend some time in Brunei. And then I guess just that encouragement of like Uncle Sharky counting to 10, he'd say, oh, he was so good. And just that sort of positive reinforcement gave me the encouragement that a slightly lazy Australian schoolboy needed. I did it for year 12 for BCE and then Mm. I studied arts at Melbourne University with a major in Chinese studies. And to be honest, at that stage, most people were probably, if there was an interest in Asia, it was very much Japanese. Yeah. That was off the back of significant investment in the 80s, Japanese tourism. And I think we had probably a tenth of the students studying Chinese as there was enrolled into Japanese. And there were some pretty odd people that mm. were to, to Chinese studies. And it was a very formal type of Sinology that you were learning back in that day anyway. It wasn't really aimed at business. And I'm very grateful for it because it gave me such a broad understanding of the language and the culture. We did politics, we did history. Even in language, we did a Chinese contemporary poetry right through to spending a whole semester translating the Sino-British Declaration on the Treaty of Hong Kong, which was the most boring class. (laughs) We did a subject called Newspaper Chinese, which was basically reading the People's Daily. And it was awesome because it was such a useful tool later on for research and other things, but Mm. very much being guided to being an academic. So when was the first time you said you went to Singapore as a child or when you were younger? When was the first time you went to mainland China? I was actually going to go in 1989 on a school trip, but for obvious reasons that got moved to Taiwan. So I first went to mainland China in the summer of 92-93. I joined a pretty big group of students from across Australia. We were at Uruwai in Beijing. We did a two to three month course. This might be a good time to talk about your food nomination. Uh, yeah, okay. You have picked M&Ms. I have, yes. Why is that? <laughs> it was actually while I was on this study tour, we were catching a train, an overnight soft sleeper to Shanghai before the express trains. And so it was a 12 or 13 hour ordeal. And we we're in this waiting room in Beijing train station it was this carved out area with these really thick heavy armchairs that were just embedded with cigarette smoke and I saw this sign on the glass with the M&M's logo and Chinese characters and I could read the Chinese characters of melt in your mouth not in your hand and to be honest I don't know if I actually recognized the character for melt yes I recognized all the others and so I went oh wow that's what that is and it wasn't like there was a shaft of light that came through the smoke haze of the soft cedar waiting room but I found it really fascinating how it was being translated and how it was being taken on board and incorporated by Chinese popular culture as well can you remember how you felt when you first arrived in China or in Beijing was there any moments where you thought um that's actually not that much different or this is completely different to what I had expected. Yeah, I guess I'd seen modern Asian cities like Singapore, Taipei. But yeah, I remember arriving in, and Beijing Airport then was like a, a low-rise brown building and it was two lanes of traffic. The things I remember was these Mianbaqia, which were the little yellow Isuzu 
taxis that took you around, plus these kind of minibuses that would have people shouting on a megaphone. I remember there was a weird collection of expatriates. There was a couple of bars. There was like a place called the Mexican Wave. I think it's maybe still be around. It was for a bit. Charlie's Bar, which was on Jingleman. And there's a few nightclubs, but you kind of had to make your own fun. I was enthralled as well by the size and the scale of it. Those two to three months were phenomenal. I remember we spent Chinese New Year, Chunjie, in Shanghai. And I'd been in Singapore when it was Chinese New Year, and there's music in the shops everywhere, and there's mm-hmm. decorations, and there's a real vibrancy. But then it was a very much a family affair. All the shops that were around were shut for days. I even think some shopkeeper let us in to their house and we had dinner with them. We were basically stuck in a hotel with no food because everything was shut. And then everyone had this kind of massive arsenal of fireworks that just came out and it was the Gulf Wars around at that stage. That's kind of what I remember, being super excited to finally get to China. For your movie, you picked Hard Boiled by John Woo. You picked a couple, but that was the one that you've picked out. Why is that kind of... Well, Lucy, the 90s were formative years for me. Hong Kong cinema peaked probably in the late 80s, early 90s with mm-hmm. Jackie Chan throughout the 80s. Jet Li, who even though he's from mainland China, was doing a lot of great cinema. And then, yeah, John Woo and his sort of hardcore action films. Hardboard was the last movie that he and uh, Choi and fat did before both of them went to Hollywood. China wasn't cool, mm-hmm. and I guess that kind of made studying Chinese or being interested in China, it made me cool by association. Yeah, yeah. It really sounded like those, that summer, the summer of 93 was quite formative in your China journey. And after that, you returned back to Melbourne. You finished your studies. I came back from China and I almost failed my second year. I really, really failed the mid-year term, but I stuck at it and studied hard and from there, I got into honours. And when I was looking for topics, uh, Danny Kane was talking about Tang Dynasty matrimonial arches or coinage. And I was going, God, no, I don't even know what that is, but it doesn't sound good. I saw a, a guest lecturer who was at Monash Uni, a guy called Jeremy Barme. When I went in there, he's wearing, he was an academic, but he was wearing like a t shirt with a tuxedo printed on. I thought, wow, okay. And it was all about the subversive nature of Yalkun, of rock and roll. From then on, I thought maybe I can do something that's a bit different and not just matrimonial arches. Jeremy asked me to do some research for him and I asked, could I come and do my honours with you? Teresa Tung had just died. And so I was trying to look for some sort of topic and he said, why don't you do Teresa Tung when she was perceived as this huge threat to the spiritual civilization?" I did my honours thesis on a karaoke singer. Basically, but she was huge. Like in the eighties, she was well loved. My grandparents had her entire catalogue. That yeah, was how I. Then, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's like the Beatles or you know the Carpenters, and there was a saying that Deng Xiaoping ruled the day, but Deng Li Jun, Teresa Tung ruled the night because everyone was yeah. listening to 
songs like, you know, Shining Moon represents my heart and things like that. Yeah. That's your go-to KTV song? It is. A broad-shouldered white man of advancing years that can sing a Dunley Jin song. It does have an effect on... It's been a while though, Lucy. I'm sure it'll come back too. It'll be deep down inside. It's there somewhere. It's It's definitely there inside. You said before to me in our pre-show chat that Denley June really helped you connect China to other fields. You started your consultancy, Red Tape. That's a great name, by the way. How did you see that opportunity present itself in terms of creating a business? I probably might have headed towards a career of academia, but there was a significant shift in 96 when there was a change of government from the Keating Hawke government that was very focused on our place in the region to a kind of more traditionalist, conservative government that John Howard famously said we're caught between our history and our geography. And I just didn't think that someone studying karaoke singers was going to get grant funding to do further Mm -hmm. research. So I taught Chinese high school I worked for AsiaLink for a few years. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship through the Australia-China Council that took me back up to China and through that mm. got a great opportunity to work at Austrade with Brian Wallace at Redgate Gallery. I was lucky enough to get a gig at the ABC with Tom O'Byrne and, and Eric Campbell when we actually had an ABC bureau for the ABC in South Bank working for Radio National's Go Asia Pacific program. It probably wasn't until my time in the city of Melbourne when I was a China coordinator and working between Melbourne and Tianjin, sister city, and taking people up and back, I realised for me that I'd returned from China. I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I spoke okay Chinese. I had a great bag of experience, but I didn't have anything else. I was the China guy. I realized that there's a lot of people like me in China, but there weren't a lot of people like me in Australia that Mm. my unique skill set was the ability to understand and synthesize some of what's going on in China or what was happening, and then being able to communicate that and present that back to Australian business people or Australian entities. I realized that you could do different things with the Chinese, that it wasn't just straight up and down. That was also a time in the mid-2000s, China had won the right to host the Olympics. They had the World Expo in 2010. They'd been accepted into the WTO. They'd even been in the World Cup in 2002. There was a massive momentum that was happening and there was certainly a pragmatism in Australia and a need for those China skills. I find it interesting in your list of accolades and experiences that Whilst you were in China, you just had such a wide range of super interesting roles. And you often find that when you're an expat in Asia and China, you get these really bizarre but incredible opportunities. But I think, and both my wife and I, my wife's also from Australia, and we met over there. We did notice that for some people, that you can have these incredible experiences which make dinner party conversations wonderful, but it's hard to build a career. You talk about creating your own business, really. You created that opportunity yourself, right? You picked yeah. what you're really good at and your expertise and experience, and it wasn't really 
it sounds like a company or a business that could cover all your skill sets. So you created one yourself, but really the AFL made a lot of sense. You're a big sports person already. It sounds like the perfect gig. I think if someone said to me when I was studying Chinese in the early 90s that, oh, you're going to you're going to go to China with AFL or with football, I would have laughed at them. And I think part of the reason also why I set up my own business was that people were asking me to do things or can you do this, can you do that? And so I saw all these opportunities and one of them was the CEO of the Melbourne Football Club. It led to taking a delegation, including Ron Barassi, Max Walker, the cricketer, a couple of players, about 15 or so business people to China at the end of 2007. And then that led to me starting my business. I got to work with the Melbourne Football Club and other things. And then probably really gathered pace around the World Expo. I positioned it as a uniquely Indigenous Australian game Mm. and an opportunity to play football up there. So Melbourne and the Brisbane Lions agreed and took Kevin Sheedy up there. He got the green light in the second last weekend of Expo in October. They played out at Jiangwan Stadium and that was a great opportunity and credit to Port Adelaide who really through their work in 2015-16 got the sponsorship from China. And as the AFL realised that it was getting a bit more serious beyond one or two games, I was approached and asked to join as the head of China, which is a ridiculous title of the AFL. And that was really more to grow the game and to grow the footprint and the commercial broadcast interests into China off the back of the game. It was a five-year commitment of which we'd already played three. And then unfortunately, COVID got in the way and that kind of shifted that opportunity. Do you think that they'll do the final two? We're in a much better place than we were three years ago from a bilateral perspective, I believe. But if they come back to writing the history of Australia and China, I think one of the peaks will be the mid to late 2015 to 2018. That might be reflected in the fact that a domestic sporting code Mm. could see the value and could make money out of playing a game through trade diplomacy in China. But I think that ship sailed. I think the AFL's got other priorities. A lot of the key people that worked both at Port Adelaide and at the AFL have moved on into other things. I just don't think there's that appetite. I think there's also China, where perhaps it was viewed as an opportunity, is now seen as a risk. Mm, Yeah. One thing that you told me earlier was that even now that you're outside of the Australia-China space professionally, but you're still with ACBC, you've been on the board, you're vice president since 2017, and you've been looking probably more recently in helping Chinese navigate Australia, whether it's the Mm -hmm. Chinese diaspora, Chinese Australians who haven't been in Australia for a long time or newer businesses and migrants coming in. I think that's always been a gap and really what a lot of China-capable or Asia-capable Australians can really leverage, which is internal, our domestic diaspora. How do you see your contributions to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such an undervalued and under-celebrated aspect of the bilateral relationship. I think that there are so many family businesses, investment that happens outside the guise of government media releases or the ACBC, that it's just people to people. Given the project that I've worked on with Patrick Skeen, who's authored this incredible book called Celestial Football, 
looking at the impact of Chinese Australians have had on AFL. Even Adam Leor's great series that's on at the moment around where do we come from and the impact that generations of Chinese Australians have had and those stories that haven't been told or haven't been celebrated. And I think that from a trade perspective too, I think there's some really great ways within which that we could harness or engage. I think you'll hear politicians talking about harnessing our diaspora, but I think they're not a resource to leverage or to use. Mm. It's about engagement, understanding. This whole idea of one plus one can equal three. So that idea of whatever we could do together could be really incredibly valuable. Lastly, I do want to bring back to sport because I'm quite curious about this, the Chinese-Australian themed game that we went to, the Sydney Swans game. What are your thoughts about engaging more Chinese-Australians or the Chinese diaspora in Australian sport domestically, whether it's AFL or rugby or basketball? I think certainly Patrick's book will help for AFL because what it will show is that there are three Chinese Australians in the team of the century for the Northern Territory, which includes Riolis, the Longs, the Buckleys. These are Brownlow medalists Mm. and Smith medalists, and you've got three Chinese Australians. No one knows that story, but I think for Chinese Australians, that's a great source of pride that can connect back in. Whatever happens in China plays out quite strongly within the diaspora here, and so I always felt quite firmly that What we're doing in China was an opportunity to connect in and have a conversation with the Chinese Australians here. Because I think for a lot of Chinese Australians, going to the MCG or the SCG or going to a football game is a bit like going to the Great Ocean Road sometimes. It's like me going to Peking Opera. I've been. Did I like it? Did I understand it? Not really, but I've been. So you've got to find those touch points that um, have that ability to create that engagement. And I'll say, I've been partly to blame because I was in meetings and I was in discussions, particularly with AFL, but I don't think AFL's really found a way to connect in yet to the mm-hmm. Chinese diaspora. It was on its way. I think in the past it's always been our product's amazing, you should come, you should love it, you'll love it, without really spending the time to think about how to frame it and how to sell it, mm-hmm. market it to those Chinese communities. And I guess the other thing too is the Chinese diaspora is pretty diverse. Yes. First, second generation recently arrived, whether it's mainland China or Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysian, Chinese, there's a lot of variables in there. And even within that, it's not necessarily coherent. And I think some people often see that just as the Chinese diaspora as being homogenous and it's certainly not. The last question, I I know I keep talking, but I think for a lot of people in mainland China, sport is newish. It's often a middle-class pursuit. Once you've Mm -hmm. got time, you've got an apartment, you might have a car, you've got kids at good schools or at school or at university, perhaps then you've got that freedom within which to pursue Mm -hmm. opportunities. And life's crowded. There's Korean TV dramas to watch. There's Dun Lee Jun songs to sing. How are you going to compete in that market? And so I think that's also part of it too is like how do you come at sport That's a good point. The lack of community, grassroots, sports awareness in China, the interest in basketball or tennis amongst the Chinese recently Mm. has been almost these kind of heroes, right? You've got Li Na, you've got Yao Ming, like these martyrs in sport. Mm. And if that means that more young Chinese are going to 
want to learn tennis or want to play basketball, that's great. But it's a very different way of engaging with sport compared with, say, Australia. Lena was a real pioneer in some respects because we often talk in Australia that we come from the bottom up from grassroots community engagement, whether it's through your suburban football or netball or basketball team or your school teams, and then it leads up to pathways. I think sport in China, particularly in the modern era from the Republican time, has really been used as a tool of building national pride. It's probably about diplomacy. And if you think about it, it was table tennis that normalised the relationship between America and China in the late 70s. Actually, speaking of which, like Lindsay Gaze, who's Andrew Gaze's mm. father, he took the Australian basketball team to China in the mid-70s after the normalisation. Can you imagine that? Brian Gorgian, who's the Australian coach now, he coached the Dongguang Panthers or something. I think it's a top-down approach. And Li Na was the one who did this idea of Dan Fei or flying solo, where she said, look, hey, it's great that I win all these things and you get a lot of my prize money, but I actually want to be myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she broke away from it. If you look at Yao Ming, Yao Ming is now the president of the China Basketball Association. But because that's a state-owned, it's a government department, yeah. he's treated like a government official. And so his ability to travel overseas is really restricted because he's treated like any other public official. He would love to connect in and do all these great projects with the Chinese Basketball League, but Yao Ming is kind of hamstrung mm. by the system, which I think is starting to evolve, but it's very different. So if you've got that top-down approach, it's hard to build fandom outside of national opportunities. And to be perfectly honest, the women athletes are so much better than the men in China. The women's cricket team almost made the World Cup. The rugby team won a medal. Their volleyballers, superstars, they're rock stars. It's up to women who hold more than half the sky in China. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that will do the, the hard work probably on the sports field too, which I think is um, another opportunity perhaps for us to, to do some great work together. We can keep going for hours, I feel, but better wrap it up. It's been great to speak with you and I'm really excited to see what plays out in the sporting space and between Australia and China and seeing you being back involved. Thanks, Lucy. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Clout Asia on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and LinkedIn as Clout Asia. Thank you for listening. See you next time.